0: I realized that the idea that economics was focusing on things like scarcity and choice and profit maximization and selfishness was really only a small part of the picture.
1: Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this series of podcasts, conversations really, with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists who have been absolutely extraordinary in the work they've done. Our guest today is Myra Strober, who is Professor of Education Emeritus at the Stanford University. She is an expert in labor economics and especially well known for her work on the economics of gender and gender issues. Myra, welcome to The Work Goes On.
0: Thanks so much, Orly.
1: Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in Brooklyn, New York.
1: (laughs) There you go. Now I know you went to Cornell eventually. How did that happen?
0: Well, um, I started uh, life in Canarsie, which is uh, in Brooklyn, and then my mother thought that my sister and I would do better at uh, a school that emphasized uh, intellectual growth, and so they moved to an apartment building right near Brooklyn College. And they wanted me to go to Brooklyn College. They thought that was fantastic that I could actually go during the day and not have to work. And I had to rebel and ask for an opportunity to go to a school that I thought was more intellectually challenging. I'm not sure that Cornell was more intellectually challenging, but I think I just wanted to get away, certainly out of the city. And uh, my next door neighbor in this apartment house was a professor at Brooklyn College. And my mother insisted that I go talk to him, which was really a great idea. And he asked about my interests. And when I told him, he suggested that the right place for me would be the School of Industrial Labor Relations, At Cornell. So of course, I'd never even heard of it. (laughs) But once he talked about it, I wrote away for a brochure. There was no internet in those days. And I really thought this would be a fabulous place for me as it turned out.
1: It's fascinating because uh, many people that have been on the podcast series have had connections uh, at Cornell, including Bob McCursey, who was the dean at one point. What did you think of the place?
0: I thought it was just incredible. Uh, First of all, we were still in Quonset huts. Uh, For those people who don't know what a Quonset hut is, it was a semi-permanent building built during World War II. And uh, here it was, 1958, and we were still in the Quonset huts. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The most extraordinary experience at Cornell was freshman year, a course that we labeled Bus Riding 101, (laughs) we went every Wednesday morning early on a bus to some factory within busing distance of Ithaca. And so by the time the semester was over, we had visited a steel mill in Ithaca, a uh, pajama factory somewhere in Pennsylvania, IBM, corning glass and a coal mine where they had to get special permission for women to go down into the mine because it was considered um, bad luck to have women in the mines. And I have to say that exposure to work, real work by real people who were struggling as, as a, you know 18-year-old, uh, was an extraordinary experience. And I have to tell you that years later, I was teaching a course in labor relations at the Stanford Business School, and we got to the part on grievance procedures. And the case that we were studying was in a chemical factory, and uh, one of the employees was grieving because um, he was not permitted by the foreman to go and use the bathroom when he needed to use it. <laughs> And two students in the class objected to this case. They said that they were not paying the kind of tuition that they were paying in (laughs) order to read a case about somebody who uh, wasn't permitted to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And something clicked in my head. And I said, how many of you have ever been inside a factory? Not a single student in that MBA class had ever been inside a factory. So I dismissed the class, and I called um, the, uh, which one was it? It was a Chevy, I guess, at the time, uh, over in Fremont, a Chevy plant. And I asked if we could come and have a tour of the plant and have some time talking to the UAW local, and uh, they agreed. And so after this field trip, we resumed, and I said, how do you feel about this case now? And of course, they understood because they remembered the paint shop at the auto factory and realized that uh, not being permitted to leave in order to go to the bathroom warranted a grievance.
1: <laughs> Very interesting. That's, that's actually fascinating. So they were still in quasi huts back then. That's fascinating. We were. What, what did you do after Cornell? I know you went to MIT eventually, but what did you do after Cornell?
0: Uh, First, I went to Tufts to get a master's in economics because uh, ILR was very interdisciplinary, and hopefully we can come back to that too. Uh, And I I needed more economics in order to do a PhD. So I did a year of economics master's degree at Tufts and uh, then went to MIT.
1: How, how How did you end up at MIT? It must have been quite a place too.
0: Well, I restricted my search for graduate school to Boston because my fiancé, then my husband, uh, was a student at Harvard Medical School, and I wanted to get married and live in Boston. And so luckily for me, there were two terrific programs in economics uh, in Boston. Harvard was a non-starter. I had an interview at Harvard. It was extremely brief. Uh, the first question the interviewer asked me was, was I normal? <laughs> and <laughs> I, in turn, asked him what that meant. And he said, oh, you know, do you want to get married and have children? And I said, well, uh, you know, I, I'm already married. And uh, he said, well, there you have it. And he opened the door and showed me into the hallway. (laughs) So that was the end of Harvard. (laughs) MIT was different. They accepted me. I was one of three women. One of them left at the end of the year. So there were two women in my class. And then there were two women in the class ahead of me, two women in the class behind me. And then they accepted a nun the following year, assuming that she would not get married and have children. (laughs) But she fooled them. Uh, She married a a man <laughs> who lived across the street from her. He left the church, she left the church, and so there was no safety for MIT.
1: I know we'll come back to this issue of family and motherhood and women and so on. What, what, uh, who did you work with at MIT?
0: I worked with Charlie Myers and uh, Abe Siegel and Doug Brown, and uh, then there were a couple of other economists Evsy Domar had a huge influence on me and my thoughts about my thesis. And uh, Bob Solo, Paul Samuelson. Uh, but my thesis committee was uh, Charlie Myers and Abe Siegel.
1: And what, what uh, we had uh, Bob Solo on, actually, he did do a podcast. He, he joined the Army at, at age 18 when he was a junior at Harvard, from what I can tell. What did you write about?
0: Me, and my thesis. Yes. I looked at manufacturing wages by two digit industries in 53 countries. And I had data on um, average earnings in those industries and productivity in those industries. And I tried to see what the hierarchy of industries was with regard to pay in developed economies and less developed economies. Mm. And the hierarchy was pretty much the same in all developed economies, but quite different in less developed economies. And I was trying to see whether productivity could explain the differences across countries in that way.
1: And what did you find?
0: Well, I found that the undeveloped countries, less developed countries, you know, were... Individual, depending upon which industry was being emphasized, but that eventually, as these countries developed, they all became similar to the developed countries uh, hierarchy.
1: Interesting. Interesting. What was your first job?
0: My first job was at the University of Maryland, and I was fortunate enough to have Barbara Bergman as a colleague.
1: Oh, wonderful!
0: Which was just really wonderful. Uh, but I had a lot of great colleagues at Maryland. Um, I <laughs> I didn't have any trouble as a woman at Maryland, probably because Barbara had paved the way. <laughs> but the difficulties came later.
1: I see. Right, now, you left Maryland, I guess, at some point.
0: I left Maryland because my husband had been at the NIH, and he got really a terrific offer at Stanford. And so, you know, in those days, uh, there was really no job market. The way the job market worked was your thesis advisor knew someone somewhere and that's how you got a job. So my thesis advisor didn't know anybody at Stanford. And when I got there, I talked to Mel Reader, who was the senior labor economist and very, very nice, very helpful. But there was no vacancy for a junior labor, labor economist at Stanford. However, there was one at Berkeley. And uh, that was a commute away, but possible And my thesis advisor did know Lloyd Ullman at Berkeley. And so uh, I did get a job at Berkeley, but not as an assistant professor. I had been an assistant professor at Maryland, and I could not get a job as an assistant professor at Berkeley. The last woman at Berkeley, faculty member in economics at Berkeley, had been hired, I think, in 1928 or 36 or (laughs) some time like that and was long gone. Um, Margaret Gordon, who was Aaron Gordon's wife, was at Berkeley in the economics department, but she was a lecturer, and I was hired as a lecturer. And two of my classmates from MIT were assistant professors at Berkeley. And so I went to see the chair of the department, and asked him why they were assistant professors, and I was a lecturer. And he said it was because I lived in Palo Alto, <laughs>
1: you know yeah. i i read your i read your autobiography uh in which you recount <laughs> this in the first chapter uh it's actually quite uh, uh amusing uh i guess it, the we can say the name he's not alive anymore george brake i guess was the chair at that time well known fina- public finance economist uh and then i remember the end of the chapter you talk about lloyd Ullman, who you had much yes. fonder things to say about
0: much fonder Yes. Uh, after my experience with George Brake, um, and it is completely outlined in my memoir, um, I, you know, at first I thought, my goodness, I didn't know you had to live in Berkeley in order to be on the faculty. And then eventually it hit me that this was just ridiculous. And so I, I really began to be a feminist after that, because I started reading about... Um, Discrimination Against Women, I read Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, and I decided I want to teach a course on uh, women and work. And so I asked Lloyd now, Oman, now, when was
1: this? This must have been one of the first courses it, ever on this.
0: It was. It was. It was 1970. And um, Lloyd said that um, if I taught this course, then he would have to teach the course I was teaching, and he would do that if i agreed to give him the susan b anthony medal <laughs> of valor
1: <of> <laughs> i bet he i bet he did that with a grin too
0: he did he, he he was a lovely man and always had a good joke in mind and then when lloyd retired i uh, actually had a little medal made and i gave him the susan b anthony
1: Medal. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually you lived up to your part of the bargain And then you eventually now what happened you moved to stanford at some point
0: yeah so what had happened was before i came to berkeley the previous spring many women uh who were lecturers at berkeley filed a complaint against berkeley with the labor department uh, for sex discrimination so i remember when the investigators came from the labor department at first, they took a hotel room, then they decided they had to take an apartment because they'd be there for a while <laughs> investigating sex discrimination at Berkeley. And so eventually, Berkeley made me an offer as an assistant professor. But Stanford did not have a suit filed against it because there were no women to file a suit. <laughs> I mean, not only did Stanford not have women faculty, they didn't even have lecturers So Stanford got nervous that somehow there would be a complaint. And so I got an offer from the Stanford Business School uh, to come and teach. I was the first woman faculty there. And that same year, in 1972, they hired their first black man, their first Asian American man, and their first Hispanic man. Hmm. So it was a banner year. Stanford also hired the first woman faculty member in the law school and the school of engineering. So they wanted to show that they were being good people. Very
1: faithful to the, to the, (laughs) to the cause of the law, I guess, in this case, what, what (laughs) now you ended up in the education school. And because I do want to talk about that. How did that happen?
0: Okay. So I had a very difficult time at the business school. Um, After my experience with uh, George Brake and the economics department, I really changed my field. So I was no longer looking at uh, wages and productivity in developed countries, and I was thinking about doing work on unemployment, and I jettisoned all of that and began working on women and work. And so my field was never defined when I got this job at the business school. And when I came up for tenure, uh, it was unclear to everybody, including me, who should be reviewing my work and, you know, who should be uh, asked to write letters and so on and so forth. And so I would say it was a huge mess and I got turned down for tenure, as did three other men faculty that year. And people wanted to know if I was going to sue Stanford, and I thought, no, you know, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm moving forward in whatever way that means. I was a prisoner of, at Palo Alto because my husband refused to move, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to wind up working for the Bank of America or <laughs> Wells Fargo or
1: Well, that, that, might, that. might have worked out okay too. Who knows?
0: <laughs> might have, uh, but I had begun doing work on how teaching became a woman's occupation. And I was looking at teaching, I was looking at bank telling, I was really interested in occupational segregation and the feminization of occupations. And there was a historian at the School of Education, David Tyack, who was also interested in the feminization of teaching. And he and I began working together. We co-authored quite a few papers and he, uh, when I was turned down for tenure at the business school, he went to the dean at the School of Education and said he thought the business school had made a mistake and could, could we, the School of Education, hire me? And the dean was very much in favor of that. And so ultimately, with a lot of painful twists and turns, um, I got a job uh, in education.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I noticed... It's, people mention about you. Apparently, at some point, you organized a program that involved students from the education school with people in the business school.
0: Yes. So I did not organize that program. It, Michael Kirst, who was a professor at the School of Education, organized it some years before. But uh, in 2000, Mike wanted to uh, uh, leave that position and he recommended that I take it over, that is, director of this dual-degree program. And in order to do that, the business school had to give me a faculty appointment. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go, 25 years after they turned me down. Um, <laughs> They give me faculty appointments.
1: That, that must, I, I, I was wondering about it because uh, I talked, mentioned in fact, uh, because uh, Cecilia Rouse, my colleague here, works on the economics of education.
0: Yes. She was
1: interested too. That must be a unique program.
0: I think it is. Um, we've arranged it so that students can get the two master's degrees within two years. So the courses that they take in the School of Education count toward both degrees. Mm-hmm.
1: Pretty, and, pretty demanding.
0: Um, yeah. Now, it's a wonderful program.
1: We, yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, I had not heard about it until I started looking into what you were doing. Let, let's talk about feminist economics. So uh, there is an association, I, I, I know a little bit about it, uh, that the International Association for uh, uh, Feminist Economics and I guess it meets annually, uh, and you were one of the early presidents of it.
0: That's right. So when I was studying the feminization of teaching and feminization of occupations in general and occupational segregation, I began to realize that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way in which economists were looking at this problem, Um And I have come to see that what we have done in the social sciences and maybe in disciplines in general is taken some small part of human behavior and burrowed down into that and just ignored everything else about human behavior that might give us some understanding of how people are making decisions. And so I realized that the idea that economics was focusing on things like scarcity and choice and profit maximization and selfishness was really only a small part of the picture. And if you wanted to know why uh, teaching, which had been a man's occupation, uh, became a woman's occupation, it really was not solely about Profit maximization, or even you know, cost minimization in the nonprofit sector, it really was a much more complex uh, question and set of answers that had to do with issues outside of economics, that had to do with social structures and our our way of thinking about gender, and that you couldn't answer that question just by focusing on profit maximization. And so I began to be interested, particularly in uh, Julie Nelson's work. And Julie had recognized that although Adam Smith thought that economics was about provisioning, somehow or other, in her view and mine as well, the discipline lost its way (laughs) and became about profit maximization and choice and scarcity, selfishness and so on. And so... Julie and I and several others were very active in forming this um, International Association for Feminist Economics.
1: And have you been to many of the meetings? They seem to have one every year.
0: They have one every year, and they have one in a different country every year. So I've been all over the world with (laughs) feminist economics.
1: (laughs) That's wonderful. Actually, I I did want to ask you about that, too, because... uh, I, as I say, I have your. I'm I'm one of the purchasers of your, of your memoir autobiography. It,
0: well, thank you. <laughs> it,
1: it has a, a lot of details about your whole life, uh, and and of course I, you now have a new uh, book, and uh, the the new book I, I I have not read, but it is it does have some. Well, tell us the title. What is the title?
0: Well, it's funny because we told the publisher that we wanted the title to be. Love and Money, but they decided it should be money and love. <laughs> that, um, and then my then 16-year-old grandson said that was a good decision because if we wanted men to read this book, which we certainly do, uh, they would be much more likely to read it if it were money and love. <laughs> so that's the title. Well, it is, the reason I
1: mention it partly is because it's not typical that an economist uses the word love let alone in the title of a book. What is it about?
0: Well, the course that I taught for so many years, beginning with Lloyd Ullman in Berkeley, was, well, originally the co- course was called Women in Work. And then uh, one year, some intrepid men took the class <laughs> and said they would uh, help me recruit men the following year if I would change the class, uh, not call it Women in Work, but call it uh, Work and Family. So I called it work and family. And sure enough, by the time I stopped teaching the class, 40% of the students were men (laughs) and the conversations were far better than they had been, more interesting. And um, uh, we thought, my co-author and I, who my co-author was my former student, uh, we thought that uh, love and money was much more sexy than work and family. (laughs) So uh, that's why we changed it.
1: Uh, yeah, that's it's interesting. I had a friend actually, long gone now, who actually wrote a, a book called the the uh, the the, the, more, the work and family experience, sort of. Who uh, mm-hmm. was a uh, interesting uh, about a lot of things related to it. I know there's an entire podcast about your book that McKinsey has organized. What well, what would be the, the brief summary that you would give about what it is about now?
0: The two underlying. Uh, principles are first, that although conventional wisdom tells you to make money decisions with your head and uh, love decisions with your heart, in fact, uh, for most of these really important decisions, uh, the love and money aspects are intertwined. So whom you marry has probably the most important effect on your career of anything you might do and and on and on your life and on your family and um you know the idea that you marry simply for love without ever thinking about money is probably not quite correct um, <laughs> and so all of these decisions need you to engage both your heart and your head and in fact, some of the people who are most interested in this book are those that run uh, financial advising firms because they recognize that their advisors can be far more effective if they consider family issues when they advise their clients uh, rather than simply you know, running the numbers and telling them what, what age they can retire at. Uh, So that's the first thing, that love and money are intertwined for all these decisions. The second uh, principle really comes from Daniel Connerman, who has argued that people make decisions about important things far too quickly and need to think more about these decisions. And so we have developed a framework, we call it the five C's, that's really designed to slow down your decision-making process to let you think about all the different aspects and facets of your decision um, and hopefully come to the best decision you can make.
1: That's fascinating, actually. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that money and love (laughs) gives a complete description of what you're talking about, but it certainly sounds like something that could be a very great interest to many people. Well, we're coming to the end of our podcast, and I did want to ask you one last question. Uh, you must be one of the earliest women uh, that entered the economics profession. Uh, now, there of course, uh, there are many more women than there used to be the case. Uh, of course, a lot of women who do labor economics, That's that's not, in that part, you're, you're not unusual. But how do you feel or do you feel that the profession has changed enough to be welcoming with regard to gender?
0: Well, I think all of academia is more welcoming than it used to be, not only in economics, but also in science and law. But I still think that the profession itself is too narrow in the way that it considers uh, economic decisions. I think economic decisions are far more complex than just being selfish. You know, people are selfish, but they're also altruistic. And people do in their decision-making consider many things. Um, I always ask myself, why did the owners of steel mills in the 1890s go all the way to Eastern Europe to find new steel workers and spend money to uh, pay their travel costs across the Atlantic and so on, when they could have simply hired the wives of the current steelmakers who were home, ready to work. But the idea of hiring women to work in steel mills, even though it would have been far more profit maximizing, they probably at that time could have even paid them less. um, They didn't do it. Why not? Because social constraints were very strong. It was simply considered an impossible thing to do to hire recruit, uh, the wives of steel workers or even the, uh, young daughters of steel workers, uh, to work in those
1: factories. That is, that is sort of the view of the economics of discrimination that Gary Becker this surprisingly, I guess, uh, more or less proposed that it, it is, uh, people aren't optimizing money profits. They're optimizing something else. And, uh, that that permits this odd behavior even though obviously there are sometimes incentives to break it down well it's been wonderful talking to you myra thank you yes our guest today has been myra strober professor of education emeritus at the stanford university please join us again for the next episode of the work goes on an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at princeton university I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.